0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. It did show a 30% lower mortality risk among patients when bariatric surgery. That's a little lower than some of the other studies, but it's still a very important reduction.
1: is based on three articles from the August 18th issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The first is Three-Year Outcomes of Bariatric Surgery in Patients with Obesity and Hypertension, a randomized clinical trial. The second is Association Between Bariatric Surgery and All-Cause Mortality, a population-based matched cohort study in a universal healthcare system. And finally, an editorial about these articles titled, Bariatric Surgery for Patients with Obesity, The Earlier the Better. The author of the editorial, Dr. Christina Wee, joins us as a guest. She's an associate professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and director of the Obesity Research Program in the Division of General Internal Medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. She's also an associate program director for the internal medicine program there and a deputy editor of the Annals of Internal Medicine. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Christina, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, The topic of bariatric surgery is really important in 2020. My understanding is about 40% of the U.S. population is considered obese, and that's one of the reasons they were having so much trouble with uh, COVID-19 because obesity is a major risk factor. It's also a major risk factor for a lot of other diseases. Your wonderful editorial in the August Annals looks at bariatric surgery and how that might impact uh, patient health. Bariatric surgery is always confusing to people. My understanding is they're two different types. So for years, we were doing a lot of Ruin Wise. More recently, we're doing a lot of Gastric Sleeves. So why don't we start with the gastric sleeve, which is the common new operation. Let's go over that one, and then we'll go over the RUIN-Y.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Bob. Yeah, so uh, you're correct. So the RUIN-Y is the more established procedure, but more recently, it's been surpassed in terms of the volume performed by the sleeve gastrectomy. So the sleeve gastrectomy, it's a simpler procedure. Um, Basically, the surgeon removes a major part of the stomach along the greater curvature. So what you end up with is essentially a gastric tube that connects the esophagus to the small intestine. And so as you can imagine, this procedure produces weight loss through several mechanisms. First, you now have a smaller gastric pouch. And so just by virtue of gastric restriction, a patient uh, will be able to eat less but we're also learning that a lot of these procedures will interfere with the regulation of gut peptides. So because part of the stomach is now removed and that part of the stomach previously um, influenced the way uh, our gut hormones are released, the sleep gastrectomy also reduces the secretion of ghrelin. Ghrelin is the hormone that stimulates appetite. And so when you have a lower level of that, you eat less. In in addition, it also has effects on other uh, gut hormones such as GLP-1 and CCK and other hormones that lead to anorexia. So the sleeve increases the release of the anorexic hormones, which then makes you feel more full or less hungry.
1: So that's what they're doing now. Yes. there's more data on the ruin en y and that's the one that I've been familiar with for a long time. And it gives me a chance to talk about all the complications of the Ruin y because it does have a lot of complications. Right. So give us a sort of a brief introduction to what, what we mean when we say gastric bypass or ruin en y
0: Yeah, the Ruin y gastric bypass essentially is a surgical procedure where you isolate a very small part of the stomach, the proximal part, from the rest of the stomach. You take that small pouch uh, that's typically only 30 cc's in volume, and you connect that to the proximal jejunum. What you're essentially doing is bypassing most of the stomach in some of the proximal jejunum, so the duodenum and then part of the proximal jejunum. And the length of that is variable depending on the surgeon. And so the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass operates mechanistically three ways. It's a very small pouch, so a lot of gastric restriction. Because you're bypassing so much of the, all, most of the stomach and some part of the small intestine, you'll also get malabsorption of calories and then finally, and probably most importantly, what we're understanding now is that it affects the release of certain uh, gut hormones and gut peptides that affect um, satiety. So it reduces ghrelin, which we know um, stimulates eating. It's, it's essentially a hunger hormone. And it increases gut hormones that result in satiety or anorexia. So it, re- it, it facilitates the release of... Um, uh, CCK and GLP one um, as does the sleeve. Now there are some subtle differences between the sleeve gastrectomy and gastric bypass in terms of how they affect the gut hormones, and uh, there's still you know that's still being actively investigated. So in the field, some people would say that the gastric bypass is probably more effective long term, but I, I would say the data uh, until recently have been somewhat conflicting.
1: My experience, always biased because I see patients in the hospital. I see patients after ruin-wise who have complications. I don't see the people who are going to their uh, internist or family physician and doing just fine. Uh, But there are a lot of absorptive problems. You get vitamin deficiencies, trace metal deficiencies because you affect absorption more, I think, from the gastric sleeve, is that correct?
0: That's correct. So one of the reasons why um, there is a move towards a gastric sleeve is because of the it's an easier procedure, short term to perform. But longer term, it doesn't have all the long term side effects. As you can imagine, as you already mentioned, mm-hmm. you're not just malabsorbing empty calories; you're also mm-hmm. malabsorbing all the things that you actually do need. So anemia and uh, vitamin deficiencies, particularly vitamin D and K. Are an issue. The other problem is that you now also have a blind gastric pouch, and that can cause problems, uh, distension, pain, bacterial overgrowth. And then finally, the, there's this syndrome of dumping where patients, uh, especially when uh, patients who are eating a lot of starches or simple sugars, you'll essentially get uh, symptoms similar to almost having hypoglycemia. Cardia hypotension, and that's diseaseness and that sort of thing.
1: People of my age remember this from the old Bill Roth too, that we used to do for uh, duodenal ulcers. Uh, we used to get dumping syndrome all the time. So let's go to these studies. The uh, association between bariatric surgery and all cause mortality. Uh, I believe you pronounced the, the Morris study. This is really an exciting study. Could you sort of tell us, put this into context, and why it's such an important study?
0: Surprisingly, even though you know bariatric surgery is very popular, the evidence supporting it is not robust enough, at least for the long-term outcomes. So most of the data is really uh, on uh, based on smaller, uh, short-term randomized clinical trials, which look at intermediate outcomes like. Glycemic control and blood pressure control, which are all important outcomes. But really, the harder long term uh, outcomes of mortality, for example, are really based on observational studies. And as you can imagine, patients who undergo bariatric surgery are likely different from patients who don't undergo surgery for a whole host of reasons. Uh, Even after you account for BMI and age and so forth, you know, who get selected by the surgeon to undergo surgery is probably patients that they think will do well from a complication standpoint. And because of that, there's this sense and worry that even though the prior observational studies suggest that patients who undergo surgery may have a reduction of up to 50% in terms of mortality, there's concern that some of that really is due to selection bias or confounding as opposed to the real effectiveness of bariatric surgery. And so Dermara's study was important because it really tried to control for this selection bias and confounding in a methodologically more rigorous way so that they were really trying to simulate a randomized clinical trial. Having said that, it's still an observational study, so there's those caveats. But it tried to do it in several ways. For example, in the control arm, excluded anybody whom a surgeon or uh, an internist would consider high risk and would never refer for surgery. So someone with fairly recent cancer, people who were seen by palliative care, that sort of thing, someone with active heart disease, with uh, recent procedure for coronary disease, for example. The other thing it, uh, they tried to do was to match the control group to the characteristics of the patients who were actually undergoing bariatric surgery. And they did this particularly well for diabetes diagnosis and how long patients had diabetes. And finally, because they were essentially leveraging a really rich clinical data repository, this is you know done in Canada where they have a universal healthcare system, they're really able to control for a lot of the other clinical differences between the groups, including not just utilization, but they went back up to five years prior to the baseline or index date of surgery. So they did a lot of things well. And finally, and probably most importantly, their sample size is very large. They had more than 13,000 patients who underwent bariatric surgery, and then this group was matched to another 13,000 non-surgical patients.
1: That's great. So give me the elevator speech on what this study really says.
0: The the first message is that it really confirms some of the prior findings. It did show a 30% lower mortality risk among patients who under, when bariatric surgery. Now that's a little lower than some of the other studies, but it's still a very important reduction. And so it provides us, you know, those of us who've been sort of advocates for bariatric surgery, some reassurance that there is real benefit long-term. But secondly, it really tries to provide insight on this debate that's currently going on in the field. So patients who have a BMI of 40 or higher or 35 or, or higher with comorbidity are now eligible medically to get bariatric surgery. But when do you perform the surgery or when do you advise patients to get the surgery in terms over the course of their lifetime is not clear. And so what this study did was try to look at whether there was a differential benefit depending on the severity of obesity or the age of the patient. And what it's essentially found was that the patients who were older and who were heavier actually derived the greatest benefit.
1: Uh, that's really useful information. And it's consistent with the studies that aren't as large that were previously reported.
0: Well, and, you know, in direction. Well, yes. I mean, I would say that most of the previous observational studies really didn't have the power to even explore mm-hmm. the effect of age. It did, most of the other studies did suggest that the higher your BMI, the greater your benefit from bariatric surgery. There was one study that looked at the age question, but you know, they their control group was really uh, people with driver's license in Utah, so wasn't the most mm-hmm. uh, rigorously done study, but it was what they had. So, that, so this it,
1: is a, as me- methodologically strong as you can get without doing a very large randomized control trial, which is very very difficult to do.
0: Exactly, uh, and so I think it provides us guidance because I think many internists and many surgeons wonder well, you have a 68-year-old with severe obesity, lots of complications, huge impact on quality of life. Do you then perform surgery on that patient? And this study seems to say, you know, yes, especially if um, you have a surgeon that has a low enough complication rate.
1: Well, that's great. Did they say anything at all about the two different types of surgery?
0: So they did, but one important caveat about the study about 84% of the procedures were ruined by gastric bypass. And Mm -hmm. that's not surprising because that was the leading procedure uh, up to about five or 10 years ago. So so really, they weren't really able to say much definitively about the sleep gastrectomy. Of the 15% or so of patients who underwent sleep gastrectomy, they found no mortality difference at five years. We do have to be careful um, about interpreting that finding because at the time of the study, patients who got sleeve were essentially patients who didn't qualify for ruin en y uh, surgery for medical reasons. So for example, if you had a prior GI surgery or you had inflammatory bowel disease. So these are not random patients who were eligible for bariatric surgery. And so for that reason, I would not make too much of it. On the other hand, the truth is there aren't a lot of studies on the sleeve long-term and on mortality. And so we are shifting towards the sleeve based on fairly short-term data suggesting maybe some comparability. But I have to say there are emerging evidence suggesting that the rule and y is probably superior.
1: As I read your editorial, it was really interesting. We've known that, that people with obstructive sleep apnea get a great benefit. People with diabetes get a great benefit. And there was a question, and, and I had never thought of it until I read your editorial, about whether it did anything for hypertension. And uh, so the other study in that same issue of the annals is the three-year outcomes of bariatric surgery on hypertension. Maybe you could just briefly say why that's an important
0: study. As I mentioned before, most of our data is really on all comers, um, observational. There are small randomized trials focused on patients with diabetes, which show benefit from a glycemic control perspective, but there really aren't a lot of clinical trials, period, and none on patients who just have hypertension without the diabetes component. And so the Gateway study really looked at this question, um, they randomized about hundred patients, 15 in each arm. Um, and basically what they found was that the patients who underwent ruin Y gastric bypass surgery clearly benefited in terms of being able to eliminate the need for blood pressure medications or reduce the need of m- blood pressure medications. But at the end of the day, when you look at blood pressure and control per se, both groups were pretty comparable. And so what this tells me as an internist is that, you know, if you have a patient with obesity in the range of a BMI of 30 to 40, and all they have is reasonably well-managed hypertension, I don't think there is huge urgency to uh, pursue bariatric surgery right away. Now, obviously, patient preferences plays a role. There are other benefits to weight loss independent of just Mm -hmm. blood pressure control. So those all have to factor in.
1: Let's try to put all this into perspective. Patient comes into your office with a BMI of 40, greater than 40. What are you doing now with those patients when when you see them?
0: Yeah, so I've been offering bariatric surgery as a treatment option. I think there are a lot of factors that need to be considered, you know, the baseline health and how well their comorbidities are managed. And then just their aversion to short-term risks for long-term benefit. Mm -hmm. Bariatric surgery produces a lot of weight loss, and that comes with a lot of potentially psychological and behavioral consequences that some patients are better equipped to handle than others. You kind of have to be ready for such a huge change in your life.
1: And I assume you have patients who you start the conversation and three years later you're ready, they're ready to do it. Since I, I don't do outpatient medicine anymore, but when I did. I realize that one visit is one visit and right. you have to think about what's happening over time. So I, I assume that you talk about this and try to teach them and, and see what their readiness is like with any other behavioral uh, uh, concept.
0: Absolutely. And the other key point is that bariatric surgery is not um, a cure or uh, a, a remedy for obesity uh, in isolation. So, Patients do regain weight if they don't actually change their eating habits or their other health behaviors. And so really the conversation is about using bariatric surgery to help them make those changes as opposed to bariatric surgery, eliminating the need to make any health uh, changes. I also like to think of um, being a primary care physician, your relationship with the patient is a marathon, not a sprint. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Now, the 35 to 40 BMI patients, when do you start talking to them about bariatric surgery?
0: I really start t- talking to them when, you know, their comorbidities are increasingly getting difficult to manage, and from a quality of life perspective, their obesity has become a huge problem. You know, it's limiting them in, in some way, uh, independent on just, you know, a risk factor um, optimization.
1: Now, I know that, that we could do an hour about this, but when you have a patient who gets Ruin-Weiss gastric bypass, and you're following them after they've had this, what are you focused on? Again, I see the patients have the side effects because I'm in the hospital, yeah. but as an outpatient internist, what labs do you check? What symptoms do you ask about? And how do you, make, how do you try to make sure they stay healthy while they're losing the weight?
0: first and foremost, especially in the short term, right after surgery, you're monitoring symptoms for complication, but also uh, monitoring their medications, right? So they've lost a lot of weight. They're, if they have diabetes, their glucose is going to get under rapid control and you need to adjust that their medications very quickly. And that extends to other comorbidities as well. Secondly, they may not be eating well, um, not only from malabsorption, but just they're not going to feel like eating for mm-hmm several weeks to a few months. And so you need to make sure they're supplementing with a vitamin. Sometimes you even have liquid supplements just to get them through the first few weeks. Mm -hmm. Labs, it's important to check for um, iron studies periodically, folate levels, their CBC, vitamin D levels, the fat soluble vitamins in particular, you know, get malabsorbed. Mm -hmm. So encourage a multivitamin. The other challenge that I think we don't think about often, particularly for patients who undergo the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, is the issue of pain management. One of the um, complications and side effects that I didn't mention earlier is that these patients are at high risk of developing ulcers, peptic ulcers at the um, Mm -hmm. anastomosis. And so really can't use anti-inflammatory. So if you have a patient with bad arthritis, for example, Um, it becomes limiting in terms of what you can uh, manage your pain with. There's also a lot of um, inquiry into this issue of addiction transfer. You know, there, there are some suggestive evidence, still very preliminary, that a subset of patients after bariatric surgery may replace one vice for another. So, you know, increase in tobacco use, alcohol misuse, Potentially uh, misuse of opioids and so forth. And this becomes challenging when you're trying to manage a patient who has real pain, and now you've just you know, taken away a very important um, strategy to manage their pain.
1: What I get out of this and tell me if I'm right, is bariatric surgery is, especially the rune wise is a complex surgery with complex follow-up. But despite all that, it does decrease mortality and morbidity. And so the trade-off is you're uh, no longer having as many obesity problems and obesity-induced problems. You have a new set of things to deal with, but overall the patient's doing better in terms of their quality of life and the duration of life.
0: Yeah, I would say that's true for the majority of patients. Having said that, as you point out, Mm -hmm. we see the minority of patients who unfortunately – they may have lost weight, but they are also experiencing a lot of the complications. And so, which is why I don't think it's such an easy decision and it really needs the involvement of the patient more than a lot of things we do in medicine.
1: Right. And I, my, I assume that you have uh, bariatric surgeons who, that you interact with and who also understand this. Uh, the ones that I've dealt with in the past uh, are very good about making sure the patient's prepared and it's not, you don't call them up and they do the surgery in the next week. They follow them for a period of time and they do all the things to prepare the patient. And yet it's still complicated. I think you've done a wonderful job of educating us uh, and all of our listeners about thinking about bariatric surgery and understanding uh, what it can do while being very cautious about what it doesn't do. Uh, and the complications are, are still something that we have to worry about. On balance, it's worthwhile, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. These interesting studies and wonderful editorial point out that bariatric surgery can decrease mortality independent of age. It looks like the Ruin en y might be better for decreasing mortality than the gastric sleeve surgery, although given the observational methods of the study, we can't really be sure, and we're unlikely to have a randomized controlled trial. Discussions about bariatric surgery may take months to years with patients. Not all patients are candidates, but they're certainly worth considering when patients uh, have BMIs of greater than 40% or greater than 35% with significant concomitant disease. We hope you have a better understanding of the potential benefits of bariatric surgery from this podcast. Thank you so much for listening.
0: For more episodes of Annals On Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.